Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance Team. And today on the top on the podcast, we are going to tackle a different subject that we're hearing more and more about called direct primary care. We've seen more and more employers interested in this type of health care delivery. And so today we're going to talk about what it is, uh, the history of it, and the pros and cons, as well as the regulatory responses to this growing trend. So Suzanne, let's start with uh, the basics here. Can you give us a general overview of direct primary care? I can, and just a word on the different direction that we're taking. You know, we're talking now about healthcare payment rather than, um, or we're talking about healthcare delivery rather than healthcare payment, which was the focus of the ACA, and and um, many people criticized that the focus of health reform was actually just on how you pay for it, not how right. it was delivered. And so we have seen uh, an uptick in. And employers being interested in alternative ways of healthcare delivery to contain cost. And so this is one of those models. So direct primary care, which I'll refer to as DPC, it's a type of clinical practice in which a physician offers primary care services to patients for a monthly membership fee. Um, there's no additional charge to the patients. There's no additional out-of-pocket cost. It is just this monthly fee. And it's a style of medicine that physicians are embracing, especially those in the primary care area. The family practice physicians have now um, are showing interest in it because generally they take on fewer patients. There's less administrative burden of having to file insurance. And so, for example, physicians may see 600 to 800 patients in a DPC practice compared to 2,000 to 2,500 patients in a traditional practice. So physicians can become more engaged with their patients, spend more time with them, and just generally they they like that model. It seems to be a lower stress model for physicians, as well as obvious, you can see the obvious benefits for the patients. Um, we do see that there's more um, involvement on a through other means of communication. So these physicians tend to reach out via FaceTime, um, texting to check in on their patients, phone calls. Um, patients may call their doctor while on vacation. Um, or if there's an emergency trip, they'll check in with their doctor as well. So um, there is no insurance involved. The physicians are not turning around and billing insurance when they and 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 in addition to collecting this monthly fee, it is simply the monthly fee. Very good. What is considered primary care in this practice? What types of services can I get if I pay this monthly subscription fee? So each DPC is different. There are no regulations on what would have to be covered under this model, so you would need to look at each practice differently. Um, But typically, they're going to cover, the monthly fee will cover basic checkups. And one advantage also is you typically get in next day or same day for appointments because there are fewer patients. Um, But for example, you could have unlimited office visits. You could have your chronic condition um, taken care of. You could have evaluations done uh, for certain problems, biometric analysis, routine vaccinations, physicals. Um, You may see some minor surgical procedures and biopsies, uh, discounted lab tests. So things like lab tests, some some ancillary things could be an additional cost. Um, Some prescriptions, of course, would be an additional cost. Um, Injury, like non-emergency injury care, well-child visits, physicals, acute illness care, um, there could also be some low cost to some basic imaging. And so that's generally what you would see. Um, 
for, you know, covered under that basic monthly charge. Right. So if a patient has this type of direct primary care service, do they still have insurance, like major medical insurance? And if so, what would that be used for? Yeah. So there's so patients who go through a DPC model will still carry major medical or they could have Medicare Advantage plans, for example. Mm-hmm. But if they're not under Medicare, they would still have a major medical plan that would cover things like emergency room services, surgery, hospitalization, if they had to go see a specialist, maternity care, um, pharmacy. So you still need that, that uh, major medical but we, um, and the major medical could also pick up things for ancillary services like labs or radiology, for example. Um, but just as an example, I saw one comparison done. I read about one comparison. I thought this was very helpful. It related it to car insurance. And it said, you don't use your car insurance for things like oil changes, but it's there in case you have a car accident. So you, likewise, you think of the DPC model as picking up those routine transactions, those routine medical care, whereas your major medical would pick up the higher um, medical care issues. Oh, I like that analogy. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so now that we have this general idea of what direct primary care is, tell us a little bit about the history of it. How long has this model been around? From what I can tell, it seems like it started really around the end of the 1990s or early 2000s when there were three doctors who had the idea of going insurance-free and just charging a monthly fee. And so that would free up their time and they would get back to enjoying medicine because you hear from physicians all the time, especially in that area, area that they no longer enjoy practicing medicine. There was one um, practice that made it kind of big called Q-Lions, and it was based in Washington State and started about 2007. And it was backed by the Amazon CEO, uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Michael Dell, the founder of Dell, um, before the company leadership bought it and ran it privately. Um, it did run into some financial trouble last year. I think it was really, really related more to financing issues than it was to anything else. And so I don't know if it's an ongoing concern at that time. But one of the other practices started around that time is Iora Health, I-O-R-A. And I know that is still growing. They have um, about 24 practices in eight states, and they plan to open in 12 more states this year. So that's uh, that certainly is a model that's been successful. They have evolved more into a model instead of having individuals buy into it, they are now using sponsors, which it would be either an employer or a Medicare Advantage plan is the sponsor who covers the monthly fee for the individuals. Okay. <clears throat> Do you think this is something that will explode onto the scene, like in the same way a national chain would? Um, so I don't think so. So yeah, certainly if there were some national chains, we would see it exploding at a faster rate. We are seeing a number of the DPC practices growing, but it's typically done on a doctor by doctor basis. So you see a doctor that wants to build out their practice in this model. There is an individual named Dr. Philip Eskew. He's both a physician and an attorney. So he's general counsel and VP of clinical development for a company called Proactive MD. And he has been tracking, tracking this movement's growth. Um, through his website, which is Direct Primary Care Frontier. And by his count, there's about close to 800 practices in the U.S. as of March, and that's up from about 620 the prior year and up from just about 125 less than four years ago. So there's definitely a trend in that's growing. It's just not going to be doing so at a national clip, right. um, just more on the local level. Right. And that probably has something to do with the doctors themselves, right? I mean, they're in the, they're there locally. Their offices are local. Um, that probably plays into that. Definitely. 
Okay, so let's discuss some of the concerns with this type of clinical practice. Can you share some of that with us? Well, I, I think some of the, the concerns that have been expressed, and I certainly am not going to go through all of them here, but um, there's concern that there's no legislation that says that a DPC model has to limit the number of patients that they see. So obviously there's concern I'm going to pay in a monthly fee. What if the doctor gets overloaded and begins to neglect patients? I've paid in this monthly amount, but yet I'm not able to get in to see the doctor. That's one concern and certainly one I would address on an upfront basis with whatever uh, DPC practice you entered into an, an agreement with. On the, in the alternative, there's the concern that if this type of practice grows, we already have a shortage of primary care doctors. Most many individuals who go into medical school now want to come out and go into a specialty right away. So we've already seen a shortage of family care doctors. If we now limit the number of patients those family care doctors are seeing, we're going to create an even more uh, burdensome issue on mm-hmm. on uh, receiving primary care. So from an overall um, healthcare delivery standpoint, that's a, an additional concern. I don't know that it's growing at such a fast clip that it will take over traditional practices altogether, but you know that's that's something else that you hear. Yeah, something to think about down the road. So before we get into the regulatory challenges, can you talk a little bit about how this all works for employers? What's their role here? Where do they come in? Yeah, certainly. First and foremost, I want to disclose that NFP does have a well-established practice within its ranks that's offering a DPC model to employers. And by I say well-established, I mean that's all relative. This, again, has only been done in the last four years. So Heidi Cottle is an individual who works with NFP who has been doing this for at least four years. Um, In fact, she was just uh, announced that she's a finalist for an award by the World Health Organization, largely based on her innovative work in this area. But back to this issue of what it looks like for an employer. So an employer would uh, cover the monthly uh, direct primary care fee for their employees, either through a TPA or go direct to these practices. And there are different practices around that will um, set up a direct fee to employers. Um, So the employer will still have a major medical. So generally, the employers who see the real advantage from an overall cost containment perspective are those that are self-insured. And they're wanting to make sure that their employees are getting to that physician when they need care and and engaged with those primary care physicians. So even though you may see an uptick on the front end of more utilization for primary care, um, the data seems to be showing that there is certainly lower chronic care costs involved and and other issues uh, that are really at a higher price point for healthcare delivery. So overall, we are seeing some cost containment benefits for this type of model. You generally want it to be located either on-site within close connection to the employer. It could be located in a community between two employers. For example, we've seen some restaurants uh, gather together and and have a clinic that was closely associated from a geographic standpoint to those restaurants. We also have seen mobile units that have gone around to the various employers. So there's a number of ways that you can tackle this. And even though I mentioned virtual medicine is often heavily leveraged after that initial care relationship is established, so via the doctor reaching out by phone, text, whatever method, there's still some need for um, geographic availability for this type of program to be successful. So again, the employer would have major medical plan offered to the employees, um, but they would have this, uh, hopefully the cost associated with that would be decreased um, by this monthly maintenance fee arrangement. Right. Okay, so let's switch to the regulatory challenges um, regarding direct primary care, and let's start at the state level. 
Well, at the state level, you've seen the DPC providers often at odds with the carriers, the health insurance carriers, um, who have argued that it's a form DPC is a form of insurance, and therefore the DPC providers are unfairly advantaged, and that they, if they don't have to operate under the same main de- mandates that the carriers have to operate under, mm-hmm. so you've seen carriers go to the state the Department of Insurance and say these really need to be regulated the same as ours. But what we've seen is a number of states, over 20 states, have enacted laws that specifically exempt DPC providers from being treated as insurance. And this seems to be a growing trend. Uh, The second way that we've seen states uh, adopt laws related to DPC is to establish some standards for a legally compliant DPC arrangement. So trying to kind of step in there and and establish standards so that uh, you don't find consumers um, in a bad position and entering into some, you know, some unhealthy arrangements. So with that, let's just talk about one state in particular. Florida is our most recent example of state action, and that was as recent as March 23rd of this year, 2018. Florida Governor Rick Scott signed the Direct Primary Care Agreements Bill, which was HB 37 in Florida, and it amended the Florida Insurance Code, and it made it clear that DPC arrangements between physicians and payments do not constitute insurance, and therefore the DPC providers do not have to comply with the mandates in the Florida Insurance Code. And it also established a framework for structuring these arrangements. So it did allow flexibility as long as the arrangement met certain conditions. And this is something that we'll likely see in other states. So, for example, a compliant D.C. program must ensure that, for one, the primary care services that are provided are within the competency and training of the D.P.C. provider. You would kind of expect that, but, you know, they, they did make that a requirement. Moreover, the agreement must be in writing, it must be signed by the parties, it must include terms and termination provisions, and a description of the scope of primary care services that are covered by that monthly fee. So I think that's a really key part. We talked about that there could be a variance in what is covered, Um, so you have to have that very clearly defined. And then it also has to include explicit language stating that it does not constitute a policy of insurance. Um, that's just our latest example of state action. Right. So trying to exempt these uh, arrangements from insurance uh, regulation at the state level and then putting in some parameters to help uh, employers basically understand what they're getting into and in turn employees what they're getting through the program. That's generally what we see at the state level is these consumer protections, making sure um, individuals are protected. But tell us a little bit more about what's going on at the federal level. Well, at the federal level, we have the Primary Care Enhancement Act of 2017. It's H.R. 365, and it was introduced back in January of 2017 to the House of Representatives. And it was immediately referred to, and it remains still with the House Wins and Means Committee. So we haven't seen it come out of that committee yet. And what it does is it clarifies the tax code in two important ways, Um, that right now uh, there is uh, some regulatory barriers to keeping, allowing patients to have work within a DPC model who have access to HSAs. So here's the issue. Um, So there's currently, there's a lack of clarity in the tax code about how DPC arrangements should be treated vis-a-vis HSA account. The The Internal Revenue Code, which I'll just call the code, clearly states that HSAs must be paired with a high deductible health plan, as we always we all know. It also says that individuals are prohibited from having a second health plan to cover services that are not covered by that high deductible health plan. 
That's why we get into so many issues with what care is being provided under that deductible. Um, and there are current treasury regulations that treat the DPC monthly fee arrangements like a health plan instead of a payment for medical services. So because of current policy, individuals with HSAs are effectively barred from having a relationship with a DPC provider. It would prevent them from contributing to an HSA if they have an established relationship with a DPC provider because it would constitute an impermissible coverage under an HSA, under the HSA laws. Secondly, the code is unclear about whether the payments that are made to physicians under a DPC model are qualified medical expenses for purposes of HSAs. So under Section 213D of the code, employees um, currently may not be able to use those HSA funds to pay for that monthly fee. I will say most of the models we're seeing, the employers are paying for it but they could have an arrangement where the employer pays a portion of that monthly fee and the individuals pay a portion. If they do right now, it's not clear that they could use their HSA funds to pay for that monthly fee. So what this law does is it attempts to solve these two issues. One, it says DPC medical homes do not constitute a health plan. Therefore, um, an individual can contribute to an HSA and be involved in a DPC model. And secondly, the payments that are made to DPC practices for primary care service should be treated as a qualified medical expense, and therefore the HSA funds could be used to pay for these services. Interesting. So the law at the federal level attempts to reconcile some of the differences that are out there under current law relating to HSAs. We have states acting to maybe help these direct primary care arrangements be a little bit more uh, palatable at the state level. Um, we see this as a growing trend. So this is all very interesting. What can we expect to see this year? Well, if we just look at the, pact, at the passage of the Florida law as a measure, I think 2018 will still be an active year for the expansion of DPC as an alternative source outside of that traditional model at the state level. And then certainly if the Primary Care Enhancement Act um, or that H.R. 365 starts to move through Congress and there's increased interest in the DPC model generally, we will likely see some new investments made into DPC practices, which will then lead to more growth of those types of practices. So it's really kind of an exciting time. I feel like we're, we're still at the forefront of uh, DPC uh, delivery, but we, we certainly see it as, a, as an excellent alternative method. Right. Suzanne, this was very interesting and a different topic than we generally cover on the podcast. And so we appreciate you laying this out for us. Yes. And I will say, if you have an interest in this type of model, reach out to your NFP broker and they can certainly provide additional information. Right. And with that, as we like to say on the podcast, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank but, you, Chase. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.